0: If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.
1: Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. I hope you're well. How are you adjusting to spring? If you can call this spring, we just got done with a snowstorm here in Minneapolis Hit, I think, uh, like seven states or something. Tornadoes across the south. I just got back from New York last night. The worst flights ever. Turbulence, like nothing I've ever experienced before. And they they kept reminding us that it's going to be safe. we got about 10 more minutes of this. (laughs) So I made it through. Spring is amazing when it's amazing. But the, the flip side is that it can be quite disorienting like a drug that our whole system seems to crave at times. The days when the sun is shining it seems to fill our hearts with lightness. Our energy surges, our our steps feel light. And it's a new freedom that we feel no longer encumbered by the masses of clothing. And then uh, we have to put them back on again because suddenly it's 38 degrees and raining and threatening to snow. And the roller coaster can start to take its toll on us. You know, that, you know, combined with... The, all the new stuff floating around in the air from the trees, you know the the thing about uh, spring is that it's it's an environmental stew of sorts, and from a neurological perspective a neurochemical perspective it's we, we really are sort of riding this this roller coaster and you know i can have I can have one day where i 'm just feeling great beaming and enjoying the bounty of spring's glow, and then I have a day like today where suddenly. I'm feeling sluggish, I feel the heaviness, it's cloudy again, I kind of feel it in my chest, my eyelids get heavy, and every footfall seems effortful. And that's really what spring looks like. So if you're, if you're having one of those days where you feel like it, you're, you're, you, know, you should be happy that, that it's spring and that winter is behind us, this is, this is part of the reason you're feeling that way. So just ride it out. You're not alone. It's a common pattern. I hear it every year in my practice and experience it myself. And just remember to listen to what your body is communicating. If you're having one of those days, exert less. Take some time to read, go for a short walk or bike ride. Today is not the day to push hard. I'm giving you permission to do less and find some joy in that. Sometimes resting is the most productive thing you can do. Or if you're if you're feeling that way today, find a comfy spot for yourself because I have Peter Kaminsky here on the program a uh, television producer, and writer. Some great stories and conversations coming your way here. Uh, if you're new to the show, thanks for checking us out. This podcast is an exploration of health and what it means to you. Through the ideas and conversations you get only here on Highwood Health, I hope you might discover ways to enhance the, your day-to-day experience and to find your wellness bl- blueprint. If you're a regular listener, thanks for your continued support. I'd love to hear how you're implementing at least one thing that you've received here from any of the guests – Maybe a physical challenge you're working to overcome, maybe a mental health solution that you've been seeking and have found insight into. Uh, maybe it's just a, a simple change of perspective that you've gotten from one of my guests or from me. Tell me about it. I'd love to hear about it. You can email me at jeremy at com. Also, if you've been enjoying the content and inspiration you've gotten here on Highway to Health, today is a great day for you to become a supporter because we're deep into the uh, building of our website and could really use some funding make a statement and let us know that you would like to hear more of these conversations and get more support and resource. Uh, It's very easy. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. That's patreon.com forward slash highway to health. We've got uh, different pledge levels so that anyone can afford starting at just $1 a month. Also, you can learn more about the project in the two minute video uh, that I do on the Patreon page. Also, don't forget, you can now listen to Highway to Health on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Buzzsprout. And if you're going to be in the air or underground and want to listen to us there, just download the episode before you travel. I'm so excited to have uh, to bring you today's conversation with Peter Kaminsky. For 20 years, he was co-producer of the Mark Twain Prize for Comedy, honoring the likes of Richard Pryor, Carol Burnett, Eddie Murphy, uh, Bill Murray, Tina Fey, and a a whole lot more. New Yorkers know him for his outdoor columns and the underground gourmet in the New York Times and New York Magazine. He's also published a number of books on food and fishing, which we discuss here in our conversation. Having studied anthropology in college, there seems to be a common thread running through all of his work that is a study of the human condition, our relationship with nature and communing with food and drink, and most importantly, finding the humor in it all. Please enjoy this conversation with me and Peter Kaminsky. I've read some of your fly fishing stuff, which I I like a lot. I had my 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 grandfather was a a fisherman, not a, not fly fisherman, but he did he fished for salmon in in the UP and with, with big striped bass. Fishermen would go down to the Ozarks and you know fish mm-hmm. there with one of his nephews and stuff. So I I learned fishing through through him. So there's an aspect of like I see the thing that you kind of get into with fishing, which is like that. Uh, so many people search for is is being able to find that thing. That really draws them in, you know, so the way you talk about it, the way time stops. And and th- that that's really kind of those, it's those moments that we're really searching for.
2: There are two things that I, I can do where I don't notice the passing of time. Or maybe it passes on a different, yeah. you know, sidereal clock. Uh, but I, uh, fishing and cooking. Huh. I can pretty much do that all day and I'm not... In a hurry, uh, I'm not looking at my watch, uh, so the, 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 I'm very lucky that way. Yeah, uh, you know, you mentioned the UP years ago. I visited uh, John Volker, whose pen name was Robert Traver. Oh yeah, you, you mentioned him in the book, and uh, he he was uh, he he wrote Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, That's right. He was a lawyer, right? Oh, he was a lawyer, and then he was was a small town DA, and then he was a Michigan uh, Supreme Court justice. That's right. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, in American legal jurisprudence, two of his rulings are still the highest ones. One was the skinny dipping case, where he said, (laughs) "Public nudity is no offense to private decency," and uh, no, private nudity is no offense to public decency. That's that's right. Um, I take it both ways, and. He also said, uh, in a divorce, if uh, the woman makes more money, she can pay the alimony. Um, Anyway, so I remember I visited him up in the UP. He had a cabin, uh, Brook Trout. And I remember writing about him and thinking about why he likes fly fishing or how, how he likes fly fishing, how you describe it, or how I would. And I would say, I really can't tell you that. You give me anything else in the world that I like to a greater or lesser degree, yeah. I can tell you how it approximates fly fishing. That's my unit of measurement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So,
1: so, so what, uh, when did you start fly
2: fishing? I was uh, working at National Lampoon in the ni- 1970s, which was a very crazy, druggy <sighs> place. I, I totally. And uh, I took a vacation with my girlfriend, In the Florida Keys. And it was cold. I remember it was uh, 39 in Havana that week. And uh, so there went the beach fantasy. Yeah. And I was just driving along uh, in Marathon, I think, in the Keys. And I saw, you know, snapper all day, $9, party boat. So I went. I mean, I had to do something. Yeah. And I caught a 35-pound grouper, which... Isn't the biggest group in the world, but it took the pool for the day. I think I went home with fifty-two dollars. Was it was that the biggest fish you'd ever caught? Uh, I think it was the only fish I'd ever caught <laughs> at, at that point. That's a good start. But I really liked fishing, and for a year, maybe two years, um, I uh, rented a, a garage with a cot in it up in near Woodstock, and I fished down at the Ashokan Reservoir. Uh, with bait. Never really caught very much. Caught caught a lot of big sunnies. Yeah. You know, and uh one smallmouth, as I recall. But I really I loved fishing. I mean I would wake up early and go to the bait store and, yep. and uh and then I went to a place called Boca Pila in the Yucatan. No, I went to a place called Akumal in the Yucatan. Oh yeah. And uh it was uh, even then, like almost 40 years ago, it was a little club medie for me. Yeah, yeah. So we took a drive down the coast and went past the Pyramid in Tulum and made a right down this road. And it said, Boca Pila, fishing. Mouth of the kettle is Pila. So I went in, had lunch with them just to see it. And uh, they didn't charge me for lunch. They said, come on back. if you want to fish? So I did. And that was with a spinning rod. I caught bonefish and Permit. But I saw these guys fly-fishing, and I thought it was really cool. Huh. And I came back to New York. What, what did they fly-fish for down there? Bonefish, Permit, and Tarpon, baby Tarpon. Okay. And uh, I came back to New York, and there was a woman, Marcia Norman, not the playwright, Marcia Norman, uh, who was working for Michael Gross, a design studio. He'd been the art director of National Lampoon. Okay. And we were having drinks, and she was talking about fly-fishing, and her husband, Jeff Norman, an ex-Green uh, Beret, uh, wonderful writer, he was with Esquire and Playboy, uh, he loved to fly fish. She said, we're going away for the weekend. So come on up to the beaver kill and we'll we'll show you something. Yeah. And I went there and I remember we we're standing on this bridge over the Willowemock Creek, a famous uh, sacred water of American fly fishing. And, I, and it was lousy weather. No one catching anything. I saw this guy just, like, shoot these lasers out, you know, on the beautiful straight casts to that place in an old bridge abutment where there's always a fish, but no one ever catches it, and he caught it. And so I remember he came up, and he was walking to his car across the bridge, and I had a a flask, and I offered him some bourbon. And it turned out he was quite a well-known fishing author Ah. named Doug Swisher, and he was giving a three-day clinic. So I went to fly casting school. It's invaluable. And that's what I did. Um, And when I got fired from Lampoon, which is something that happens to everybody. uh, How how long were you there? uh, Four years. So I needed to make a living. Um, So the bar was really low for outdoor writers. So I started writing about fishing and uh, field and stream, outdoor life. Uh, the Times came along, and I've, you know, written for them for 30 years, uh, just about. Um, and that's uh,
1: that's me and fishing. Did, what what writing had you done before before writing about fishing? The Lampoon. The Lampoon, okay.
2: I was kind of a B-flat comedy writer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could do it uh, okay enough. I wasn't a genius.
1: And I, and I, I did a little digging, and I, 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 I've known you for quite a while, but I, I had no idea that your dad was a, a comedy writer as well.
2: Yes, he wrote for Jackie Gleason. That's amazing.
1: So how did that relationship start? How did they get to know each other to to write to that level?
2: My dad and Jackie Gleason? Yeah. Uh,
1: Because you grew up in, in New York, right? In New Jersey. In New Jersey, okay.
2: Well, perhaps the most successful comedy writer in America in the 50s and into the 60s was a guy named Marvin Marks. He was a bloody genius. And uh, he invented the Honeymooners. Him, okay. him and a guy named uh, Walter Stone. Wrote all 39 of them. And he wrote for Sid Caesar. He, okay, he, yeah. Well, I remember when I was a, you know, a young boy, <coughs> uh, conversation being that he was making $8,000 a week oh in the late 50s. But the guy lived in a garden apartment in <laughs> East Orange, New Jersey, and drove a Morris minder. He was so afraid... <clears throat> Excuse me Of dying poor That uh, he didn't spend a dime And of course he dropped dead like of an embolism Or an aneurysm okay. when he was 42 Of course So but Marvin was writing for, for Jackie Gleason okay. And my dad and he were friends My my dad had had, had a kiddie show On NBC called Pip the Piper And uh, so you know He was an entertainer, performer And he went to work for Jackie Gleason Ah and did did he was was
1: at that point did he just switch over into into writing or did he did he stay as a as an entertainer
2: no, he switched over into writing that was only a couple of years and then he came back and got into advertising again as a writer in new york yeah
1: and 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 you was that was that part of
2: what gave you the bug mm-hmm. see, seeing that I, I i never thought of it that way, perhaps uh-huh. it did, but yeah. not consciously yeah I just didn't want a job, <laughs> you know.
1: And, and and comedy was was I mean it was it was such a I mean we we had it on television at that point, but it wasn't the same kind of thing that we think of comedy today either.
2: I mean yeah. I
1: mean lampoon at
2: that point was like no, you could say anything, write anything.
1: No, no, no one had ever even tried anything like that before. Not in, yeah. Not in America. Yeah, was what was there something uh, in Europe or something? Well, that was? yeah,
2: there were. You know, uh, was it Black Dwarf? I mean, there were there were some you know some really strong stuff coming out of England and uh, out of France as well, other places I may not be aware of, but you know they were pretty fearless. Yeah.
1: So one one thing I was I, I was wondering about just reading through that the, the I forget the name of the of the book, but it's it's kind of your 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 lessons about the lessons on life from Oh a,
2: Fly Fisherman's Guide to the Meaning of Life,
1: meaning of life, and. There was there was a piece in there where clearly you were a, a baseball fan, and and you know you sort of talked about your 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 moment you know going into into Yankee Stadium, and and then later in the in the book you you were talking about like the ninety feet of line is is there a correlation is is that what the, the the amount of line is for for fly fishers or does that well, change well
2: your? the classic line I mean everything's gotten more specialized and expertized you know in our era but. The classic fly fishing line is ninety feet long, which is roughly the distance to the to home plate from the pitching mound, isn't it? Is, is that, sixty feet?
1: Oh, it's sixty feet. Now, for some reason, I, you'll
2: be I, in America a while to get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I I I tried playing baseball. for Ninety a feet bit, between bases. Ninety feet between bases.
2: Maybe that's what it is. But I, I thought that was an interesting correlation um, between the two. No, the thing I was writing about there was I called it the Yankee Stadium view, was how. <clears throat> um when I was I guess the first game I ever went to, um you know, you go you we're in the Bronx and you go, you know, in the bowels of this stadium and it's kind of loud and dreary and dark. And then you walk down this entryway yeah. and boom is this like green world. Coming from and you you were saying like
1: we, your view of baseball uh, until that point had been black and white television. So, That's right. So this must have just been like an explosion, probably That's in the same right. way that. And I can't for the life of me remember
2: how I related that to fishing, but I did in that book. I, I, I know,
1: and, and I thought it was. I thought it was about this, this distance. No, like, no, it was like, about. And, and I, see, I liked that that idea of like. You you kind of like pitching the the line almost in the same you know no, no, way that, it, that the pitcher pitched. It the, was
2: just about seeing something up close, real and panoramic yeah, yeah. for the first time. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's a I would it's such a beautiful image. I mean, I can and and I I know that I know that feeling of. I've done a lot of like shore fishing i mean i've never i've never done fly fishing but i but there's certainly those moments where you like you're just trying to find an inn a good place where you can kind of stand out there on the on the shore and you know you kind of find your way through and then you get this panoramic view mm-hmm. and that's that's it's one of the things I always loved about fishing was you can kind of find different ways of of doing it you know sometimes I'd just throw a line over the edge of a a boat that I'd rowed out somewhere and you know that i you just get this feel you know it's kind of funny because it's <coughs> I think about it with my work sometimes. You know, I do this kind of gentle osteopathic work, and and it feels similar to the way that I would have just a, a line without any sort of you know bobber or without a cast, where I'd, you just hang it, kind of trying trying to feel the mm-hmm, bottom mm-hmm. a little bit, and then and then feel for mm-hmm, the hits. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I got very good at fishing that way without <laughs> you know too much technical training. You just kind of get that feel for for what that is, and it's the same thing for for setting the hook too. I think you just have to be able to like feel that, you know.
2: Different for every kind of fish, every species. True, true. You know, setting a hook on a trout will pull the hook out of the mouth of a striped bass or a tarpon, you know, the same set. It's too you much know. pressure? Well, w- with a trout, typically you raise the rod and it comes taut and it drives the hook home. If you do that with a striper or a tarpon, or many fish, you're gonna pull, it's just you're just gonna pull it right out of the mouth. Mm. You have to point it at the fish, and with your left hand, it's called a strip set, pull hard, and that drives the hook in. Huh. So, you know, some fish, uh, you need to feel tap, 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 uh, and then you'll feel a little bit more resistance, and that's when you really hold back on it. Yeah. You know, and some fish, you just feel a little tap and go, do it right now. Yeah.
1: So, so how long did you how long ago did you write that book? Is it has it been ten years or more uh, than that?
2: Guide to the Meaning of Life. Yeah, I don't know. It's been a while. It's fu- funny. It was put out by Rodale Press. Yeah, um, and uh, then they sold it. I forget to who another thing. So they reissued it, and they put like a new cover on it. Not not much of a cover, I must say. Um, but it says, uh, but you know, guide to meaning of life by uh winner of the uh u s p g a masters tournament Peter Kaminsky because they had a fly fish, they had a uh, a golfer's guide to the meaning of life and I guess like it was Gary player or something, and no one bothered to change the <laughs> line on the cover.
1: So, so do you, do you, having, having done that work is, is, is of, of writing that book, are there, are there things that you, you, I mean, you're, you're clearly still fishing. Do you, do you go back and think about some of those?
2: Oh, sure. All the time. Yeah. That was a really good book uh, yeah, to, to do. It was a good book to do. Yeah. Uh, it's a short book. Yeah. And I just had to get it done and it wasn't like researching a lot or I needed to do a lot. It was, you know, write about what, what you've done no. and know. It was like a letter. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think I wrote it in three weeks oh wow um,
1: i I really liked that. I thought the writing was really like you you, you kind of got into some things and then you would look at the way someone fished and talk about why you can't you can't say that that's the wrong way to do something or that you know at the, there's a, and and you're just just using fishing as an example, but the metaphors were so strong for like so many different ways of talking yeah. you could be talking about religion, you could be talking about lifestyle, you could be talking about all these different things, and it was like so clear the way that you kind of wrote it in the piece
2: it's very individual in that it's always how how you connect yeah you know whatever your path is to do that thing whether it's fishing or praying or cooking or fucking or whatever (laughs) right um you know uh how you do it and what gives leaves you connected to it uh and it opens it up for you it's not the same for everybody yeah in fact it's usually not the same for any two people
1: yeah and and i think there are some there are some general rules just as there are probably in in religion that they kind of run the gamut across like you know in the way that you you know you you shouldn't get too greedy about certain kinds of things but you know to say for 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 one person to do catch and release and for one person to say i'm taking 10 fish today you, you, you know, you, that's, that's within reason, you know, and, and also it's your choice to, to choose to,
2: to catch and release. Well, yeah, let me say that. I just, in fact, I just wrote about this somewhat last week in, ah. in the times about a trip, a recent trip to Argentina. Um, The thing about, listen, everything gets eaten. <laughs> everything gets eaten. Whether you eat it or something else eats it after it dies or what. everything gets eaten. That's yeah. just the way the world is. So, you know, there are two aspects to catch and release, you know, for me. One is a lot of the fish that I like to catch are top predators. Yeah. There are far fewer trout in a stream than there are minnows. Mm. Uh, there are far few, fewer lions, not a fish, than there are impala or gazelles. Yeah. So, it's very easy to degrade the population of a predator. Right. Um, so if you value the fishery, by and large, catch and release is a good practice. Um, now, on the other hand, you know, someone wants to catch something and eat it, it's fine. But, you know, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm not standing in judgment of that at all. I do think, however, that people who just catch and indiscriminately kill everything, yeah. it's you know not particularly moral, not particularly practical not
1: practical, not particularly admirable. Yeah, I mean, especially practical. I mean, from a conservationist standpoint, I mean that
2: is the that's the basis. Exactly. Exactly. So But it's interesting. I I didn't get any letters about this. So so this last piece I wrote about was this, the the older, well, I guess there's a couple of ways you can go as you, uh, I don't want to say mature, but just grow older as a fisherman. Yeah. You know, one is you go, oh, I just love the pleasure of it and the beauty and being outside and, you know, what I catch doesn't matter that much. Yeah. I'm not one of those people. (laughs) (laughs) So, in fact... The older i 've gotten, the more I want to catch really big fish <laughs> <laughs> I, I can understand that though, and in the south of Argentina, the trout get enormous i mean the winds uh, the winds you can you can no exaggeration be fishing in sixty mile an hour winds with a fly rod, and it 's cold, and that 's what it takes, and you 'll catch some big fish so uh, there was this lake i 'd been to they call it Jurassic lake uh oh. And I'd been there some years ago. I really liked it. It's a very barren, steppe-like environment. It's not—it's Patagonia, but it's not the beautiful Montana-like mountains. Yeah. And this mesa just drops off, boom, 200 feet, basalt cliffs, and then it's Caribbean blue water. And the lake is full of freshwater shrimp, scud. It's got one stream that fish can spawn in, and it's got rainbows. So it's a little stream. They don't have a lot of... Population competition in the lake because yeah. their spawning capacity of the stream is limited and they have all the food in the world <laughs> and it's cold water, so they get big and they get strong. So I've been there, and, you know, and all I'd caught the first time was a bunch of only eight pound fish, on the <laughs> flies. You know, fish of a lifetime anywhere else, but people caught some biggies. So I went back this year and uh caught some big fish, including a 20-pound, 8-ounce rainbow. And so I wrote it up for the Times. And, they and I mean, the, the end of the story is that I uh, caught this beautiful, beautiful fish, and me and the guide who was with me, we tried for a half hour to revive the thing, but every time we let her go, you know, go on her side and see her, it just wouldn't, Revive, you know, mm-hmm. be forcing water through the gills by moving her back and forth. So, t- took her back to the lodge and ate her. Uh, it was great. So, the my editor asked me, "Why don't you start with trying to release the, release the fish, and then come back to it at the end of the story?" So I said, "Okay." And so, I got I got down to that part towards the end, and I said speaking to most fishermen I know, or fly fishermen, uh, don't, you know, don't go nuts about uh, catch and release here. Um, I, I said that, that uh, you know, release released fish don't always survive. Mm-hmm. If you're going to eat it, it ain't the worst thing in the world. Right. You know, don't judge another by your own standards. And if I may, I remember... On one of my first trips to Argentina, a very famous stream is called the Win, And both the world record rainbow and uh, – no, world record brown trout on a dry fly and a wet fly had come out of that river. So it's like this caldera and uh, it's broken on one side and the river flows out of that. So I was there. It was really cold weather and it was raining. And uh, this guy, Bob White from Minneapolis, mm-hmm. great yeah, artist yeah. and fishing guide – he hooked this gorgeous fish on a dry fly, on a caddis fly, and uh, fishing down the stream from us was a fellow named Charles Radziwill. He was an older guy, one of the uh, prince from Lithuania, and yeah, one of the famous right. gang of you know the pioneers of Argentine fly fishing. So he saw this happening, and he came up and as Bob's pulling the uh, uh, landing the fish. Charlie reaches in and grabs it by the gills and picks it up and it spouts blood all over the place. And so that was that. That was, you know, a dead trout. But I just recalled the, like, the moral high ground of all the people I was with, like, really saying what a barbarian he was and how terrible this is. Confusing catch and release as a conservation principle as opposed to catch and release as you know, a moral principle. And, you know, I remember saying to them, look, this guy was a Polish prince. They used to line up 600 peasants at a time and cut their heads off. (laughs) This was like nice behavior on his part. So, And
1: and, and for him, it's sport and just food probably. Well,
2: catch and release is an American thing. You know, in Europe, they... You know shoot everything in the sky and you know catch and kill every fish they can yeah pretty much and that's all so, you know that's changing a little bit, but that's it was an American conservation ethic because we have free access public lands mm. my t shirt keep public lands in public hands um and that's re- it was really a wonderful thing I fear you know with everything else in our country going to the point zero zero you know one percent yeah you know i don't know how long all that's going to last but it is that tradition of you know public lands and free access to fishing and hunting that sort of engendered catch and release and conservation measures
1: was was that not the case in in europe no Uh, still isn't okay interesting oh you gotta pay i had no idea okay and and, you know I, i also think just given the state of of global wellness at this point that conservation is going to have to be something that's taught a little bit more if we're going to actually do things the right way i mean and there are some places in the world obviously where it's
2: not an issue but you know certainly not we, we, many not many too. yeah and listen let's let's it, it, let's be frank about it you can be as conservation minded as you want but if we don't do something to control you know the carbonization of the atmosphere right, right. it's all going to yeah. boil away
1: Are there any places in the world that are are like your favorite places to
2: go still? They all are, you know. I mean, we're talking in Brooklyn right now. Yeah. And there's extraordinary fishing and fly fishing. uh, End of this block in the harbor there, I've caught many striped bass, bluefish, false albacore. It's spectacular, you know. In the spring and the fall, it's great. Oh, but by the way, what's what's the
1: difference between uh, the dry
2: fly and, and wet fly for anyone who's listening doesn't have an okay. idea? Okay. Well, if you ever look, looked at a trout stream, you'll see these flies floating on the surface. Insects. Yeah. yeah. Um, they, they weren't born on the surface; they were born underneath, ah. and then they split their shells open like a cocoon with a butterfly. Yeah. And they rise to the surface, and they grow wings. They dry the wings off. They fly up in the air. Stay there for a day. Fly over the stream. Screw for the first time. Have a heart attack and die. This is the a very same, the this, same day. This, well, or the next day. This yeah, is a very yeah. good life cycle. <laughs> I mean, it's a better ending. You're it's right, a happy ending. Yeah. So, um, but uh, so the, a dry fly imitates those recently hatched flies who are at that point where they're just floating on the surface of the what stream. What kind of
1: flies? What are they called?
2: May flies, caddis flies, stone flies, okay. sedge flies. The mayfly is the prince of them. Okay. Uh, and a wet fly is that same uh, animal in its, you know, pre-hatch form, its larval or nymphal form. They crawl around, they live, you know, under the rocks. And
1: Yeah. Do you have a, a preference as far as what you like to
2: fish with? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, there's nothing like a brown trout on a dry fly. When you, it requires quite a delicate presentation when you see a fish and it doesn't know you're there and you put that thing out and it floats down in front of it and it takes it you really feel moral mm,
1: yeah and and is, is is it the same kind of thing as like the difference between hunters who like to bow hunt or or you know use a a rifle in terms of hunting is is it that kind of challenge uh.
2: or is it uh, I'm, I'm not sure that, that, okay. that that's what it is it's just it's a very what's so satisfying is that it's visual mm. from the time you see the fish till it takes or it doesn't you're oh, seeing yeah, the whole yeah. thing we're like you were talking about you know bouncing bait or lure off the bottom yeah you, you hope something you, your excitement only starts when you feel it <laughs> right. you know not when you don't see it you don't see it I mean, I've done some bass fishing before too, and that's a little more of the
1: visual game because mm-hmm. you're usually sort of yeah, you know, plugs and, you know, on top plugs on a bass on explodes on that yeah, wakes you up <laughs> <laughs> for a long time. So how did how did you how did the food writing stuff? How was that born? Well, I've
2: always cooked my whole life. I'm mean, a short order cook, you know, burger flipper. Always cooked at home. I like cooking, and. In my New York Times stories, every one of them, I believe, you know, it's like 150 of them, I always, it's the outdoors column, Mm -hmm. 900 words, it's a specific form. I'd always have something to eat, whether it was just a Clark bar or a brownie or a roast pork sandwich Mm -hmm. or whatever it was, be some food. Because food pulls you into a story like your own name does on the page. You just... Go to it. Yeah. Because we want to eat, you know. Um, And so one year in the mid-90s, I did a series called A Season on the Harbor in the New York Times. And every month I'd fish a different place in New York City waters. And that was a way for me to write not only about the fishing, but about the city and characters and history and the environment and stuff. It It was a wonderful experience. So the last... One of the year was December. And my college roommate, Vinnie Farrell, we would always have Christmas lunch. And uh, Vinnie, uh you know, a guy from a real blue-collar background in you know, Westchester County became a very, very successful financial guy and big giver of charity. He was a great guy. He died a few years ago. But anyway, we'd have Christmas lunch, and uh so I'd been out with my daughter Lucy who was whatever at the time 8 or 9 or 10 and we were fishing on a party boat you know a group boat out mm-hmm. of Sheepshead Bay at the end of Brooklyn where most of the guys on the boat didn't fish they just played you know nickel a point peanut all down below <laughs> we We're fishing for blackfish a local fish also known as a tautog and there was this guy next to us named Eddie Doles and he kept pulling in the fish, and he showed us how to do it he Eddie had been like the walrus keeper at the Coney Island aquarium, a really interesting oh, fellow anyway, so Lucy and I called a bunch of fish, so Vinnie wanted to go have Christmas lunch so Michael Lamonico uh was the chef at the twenty one Club, and I knew him through fishing i wasn 't a food writer at the time i'd given him some advice about gear to get for his son okay. So I called Mike up and I said, uh, so I, you know, got a dozen blackfish or maybe six blackfish and a dozen fillets. Uh,
1: yeah.
2: If I bring them by, I want to have lunch, so you, you know, cook us some, you can sell the rest and we'll do this thing. So I, I went there and I remember I was in 21 Club, which was quite a grand place. And I'm standing on line with my little igloo cooler. Uh, and right behind me is Ethel Kennedy and Frank Gifford. So... Frank says, who oh, I didn't know, didn't know yeah, yeah. I Did you bring your lunch? I said, As a matter of fact, I did. Yeah. <laughs> and so we talked. Turns out he was a striper fisherman. He had a place yeah. in Connecticut. We're gonna, so I wrote about that. And then we, we sat down, we had dinner. And, you know, we watched Michael cook. And I remember we had uh, scallops with white truffles. My God, were they great. And we, the fish he did with a crispy skin. Mm-hmm. I, for, I forget what else he he did to What was just a spectacular meal, good wine, and so I wrote it up in the Times, and they probably gave me three quarters of a page. It was very unusual, yeah. And there was a picture of of Eddie, you know, on the boat, you know, this like Brooklyn guy, yeah, yeah. And Michael in the kitchen, like you know, flipping pans, you know, your classic <laughs> chef thing. And I got more uh, mail from from that. One story, maybe, uh, except for nine eleven, uh where I got a lot of response. But that, that, that one story, then everything else combined in my writing life. So I said, food. <laughs> so I started to write about food. And uh, do you know Kurt Anderson uh, on NPR, C.O. Yeah, 360? Yeah, yeah. So Kurt uh, was the editor of Spy Magazine at the time. Oh, yeah. And... I had, uh, uh, I I was, you know, we were friends and we were trying to sell a TV show. We did sell a few TV shows from Spy. And, uh, you know, it was like being with the Lampoon all over again, just such smart young people there. Um, But anyway, Kurt had left there and he became editor of New York Magazine for a while. And there was a place called Union Square Cafe Danny Meyer very successful modern restaurateur yeah and he was opening Gramercy Tavern and I used my office was above Union Square and I said uh, Danny can I write about this you know for the New Yorker I I got an assignment from the New Yorker and so I wrote the making of a restaurant and uh, Tina Brown was the editor of New Yorker at the time and she didn't like the story she used to kill a lot of stories I was devastated. What does what she not like about it, you know? It just doesn't sing, <laughs> 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 is what she said. Okay. And uh, maybe it didn't. I don't know. But at any anyway, rate, I called up Kurt, and I said, Kurt, remember you said you'd kill for this story? And he said, yeah. I said, you don't have to. <laughs> so Tina paid me very well, and then Kurt bought the piece. It was like 8,000 words, and it was on the cover of the magazine. It was just, there never had been such a... Well, I won't say wonderful, but such a you know extensive piece on how a restaurant happens. Yeah. and so I was a food writer, huh? And I started writing the Underground Gourmet for New York Magazine on a monthly basis, which was sort of like a lot of ethnic food, ah. an entry level kind of you know. Fine dining,
1: but uh, which but it seems to suit your your taste too. Like, oh yeah, you know, just that uh, you know exploring things that way, the way you have even with like looking for places to fish or yeah, the cultures that you kind of get to be part of in 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 doing those kinds of things. You know, you're like I feel like that seems to be a theme in all
2: the things yeah, that you're doing. I like this. Sc- well, you know, when I first came to New York in the early seventies, I was a cabbie. Oh yeah, I, I think I knew that. I was a you know hippie cabbie. Yeah, and. uh I just got practiced the art of drive-by dining. You know, <laughs> I would I could just, you know, have a feeling when I looked at a place how the staff seemed to be. You know, were they really zipping around the room? Yeah. with were the diners t- talking to each other? or just, or just like, <clears throat> you know, a couple of waiters looking at their watches? And uh, it tells you know. a lot about
1: a place. I think that the sort of energy of 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 the 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 vibe of a place, like what the what the food's
2: going to be like. Well, it does and it doesn't. I've always said that if you take a place with great food and kind of not a great front of the house experience, you know, the dining room. Yeah. Or if you take a place with okay food and just great front of the house, I'll go back to that second place. Uh-huh. You just, you know, because eating is not just, you know, squat and gobble, you yeah, know. yeah. You're there. It's social. It's a feeling. You're talking to somebody, or you're reading something. I don't know, but you know, it's just not like here, take it or leave it, buddy. Right?
1: There's there, there's there is something about I don't know, one of the one of the best dining experiences I, I ever had. Had to do with a locale. It was in Positano in Italy. sure. So you're on the Amalfi Coast. It's beautiful. There's the Have you been before? No. There's there's maybe Italy, but not to the Amalfi Coast. Positano just has like you know. I think a lot of these these uh, Amalfi Coast towns have a little a, a road that has to kind of wind down and get down there, and they also have like little steps winding you know in different sure, ways, sure. trying trying to get down towards towards the beach where everyone wants to go eventually. But there was this one with this amazing lookout. It was and it, it was set up almost kind of like outdoor cafeteria style. It was dead, nobody was there. It was it was lunchtime, maybe not Italian uh, lunchtime, but it was lunchtime for me. <laughs> Gringo <Greenville laughs> lunch. That's right. And so I was with somebody, and we and we we walked in, and there was a guy in the kitchen leaning on a on a chair, leaning back on a chair, sleeping. <laughs> Old, older older guy. So I I I stood there for a minute and thought. I don't want to bug this guy. And all of a sudden he kind of looked over at us and he's like, said something in Italian. And I said, you know, I said, do it. And he got up, he just pointed us to a table. He handed us a menu with two items on it and a red or white wine. And so, you know, we just pointed to the things that we wanted one of the best meals i've ever had mm-hmm. and the and then he just went back and went
2: back well, to sleep you <laughs> yeah you can't separate the experience from the place and the people yes you know they say the activity of uh, you know i studied anthropology in college the activity is called commensalism people dining together it's one of the distinctive features of uh human beings yeah. sharing a meal
1: yeah and i and i think again there's there that there's a there's a theme in in the way that i think there's a a, a commencing <laughs> with the even the 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 work that you've you know done with i think both the uh you know your your, your fishing but also the you know the other big thing that you've done in your life with, with your brother is your partner right with the for the mark twain
2: prize prize yeah
1: which is which is right this this kind of like you know Bringing of people together in this celebratory thing for you know, you
2: clearly humor is like a a big deal for you, and yeah, and
1: to be able to do
2: something like that. Well, the Twain Prize, uh, which we're out of now, we so we uh sold our interest to the Kennedy Center, okay, uh, but we did it for 20 years, that's a long uh, time, you know, and made it up. But it, the way we did that show was, first thing was, you know, it, it, what, if you're not familiar with it, your, your, your listeners, it's a, every, every year uh, we would honor an American humorist yeah. and we would bring other people and we'd show clips of their work and the other people were told they couldn't just do, I love you, man. They had to be funny. Yeah. Um, and we had just, just great people. And when you're honoring someone who other people like or who gives them work, yeah. people show up. Um, so, but we never had a host on that show. I always thought that was the most artificial oh, thing in the world. Just to have somebody give like a keynote, yeah. like a five, six minute funny. And then they show, cause I think the host thing is so artificial. It just, and I was happy to see the Oscars did that this year. This year yeah. And I thought it was a better show for it. And the other thing that we did was, you know, we'd have a, this big green room, you know, like bullpen Backstage, uh, where people, look, the cast would all hang out, and we'd have the, you know, the show as it progressed on the screen in there, and we had a, ni- a nice dinner the night before. So it wasn't people got to hang out. It wasn't a lot of pressure, um, and in a way that they often don't in these yeah, kinds it's of not
1: more, in, you know in these kind of awards yeah, situations. Yeah.
2: and I never maybe maybe twice, uh, or maybe once, had two people come out. At the same time because that's always the most you know uh, yeah artificial thing you know well uh um bet gosh could you spend more on your hairdo tonight <laughs> you should talk mr bold uh, ben kingsley you know i mean it's just like so forced <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh it's so true uh that's great so i
2: had a lot of great times uh a lot of great times on that show um
1: it's funny. It's funny that you got like that seems like the right way to celebrate, though to like have to have a dinner before the mm-hmm. the, the award ceremony mm-hmm. to like you know you're sort of bringing everybody together. It's, it's like this honor that you know everybody who's getting invited to
2: this. And, and they'd also get rid of their nerves about being no, totally. in Washington and could try it. Uh, a very funny one um, was we had a dinner. Uh, Bob Newhart. Uh, He was the honoree. I've worked with Bob a lot over the years, a very decent guy. And uh, so uh, who was there? Was Carl Reiner there, Tom Poston, Jane Curtin, Tommy Smothers? um, uh, So so it was was a smaller dinner than these affairs metastasized into, you know, as things do in Washington. But I remember people got up and, uh, you know, gave a little toast um and then Tim Conway, remember Tim, Conway? Oh, I I think Tim I'll, Conway? There's never been a funnier man on earth. So he stands up from the table, a very serious look on his face, and he looks around and pauses a minute to capture the attention of everybody, and he said, like almost as if he was about to weep, he said, I can truthfully say that I have never had a piece of salmon go through me so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and then he sat down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh
1: man, very him. Yeah, yeah. But there's, but but you know, to be able to like have have. I mean, this is funny, it's funny to think about. But you you, you know, the, the thing about having having a big meal like that and hang out with everybody is that it's everybody starts to let down their guard, and then to have the the show after that. It's it's got to be so much lighter than you know the way the Academy Awards happens or something. where yeah. you wouldn't eat the day before because you got to fit into your clothes.
2: <laughs> C'est vrai.
1: And, and, and but but it it feels so uptight. Like I can't stand. I just it. One of those things that I've never been able to do is watch the sort of red carpet stuff it makes me it makes me so uncomfortable for these people mm-hmm. and they you know they do it well most of the time but i i it's just again it feels so forced and this is yeah the, and and but this is the way that we we think of real life it's become ritualized yeah it's become ritualized yeah.
2: so it was it was great and uh but I'll tell you, not dealing with you know publicists and managers and You know, stars who were hard to get a hold of, or oh yeah, you know, ones who are, you know, don't tell me what to do. I mean, you know, have an attitude and um, won't take any help. I mean, we always had really good writers um, if they needed them. Uh, It's it's a big anxiety load off my shoulders. I just like writing.
1: Yeah. Was it? Was it? Was the what? What gave you guys the idea to to do this thing in the first place?
2: So, I, my brother and I, uh, they'd like killed off a bunch of producers. It was the twentieth anniversary of People Magazine. It's one that had been ninety three, and uh, so we had done Spy Magazine on TV. We did it with, with Jerry Seinfeld. uh did it with Kevin Nealon. So we knew something about taking the idea of a magazine and putting it on TV. <clears throat> um, so they called us. They'd been through a bunch of executive producers. We're still getting paid. Yeah. And so it was a two-hour show. It was a monster. And it was so hard to book people. Yeah. No star w- wanted to deal with people in magazine. Only do it if you're in rehab or if your kid died. You <laughs> yeah. Know? yeah. Otherwise, they don't need it. Yeah. Um and I remember trying to get to Oprah, it's some, you know, hairdresser who knew a dog walker, who knew the postman, you know, who would deliver a letter. It's impossible. All right. So I got a call from a thing called the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens. And they were to do a yearly fundraiser at the uh, Waldorf, uh, sorry, uh, and they, they were honoring Steven Spielberg. Would mm. I write it? And I said, yeah. Sure. And uh, so at the same time, like, I couldn't get to Oprah or this one or that one. I go down the list of people who worked for Spielberg, and I'd like to be sitting in my office, you know, with, with Time Life then, because that's where people is. I remember sitting there one night, and it was, hello, Peter? Yeah, Ope. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, did you, you know this this thing, Stephen Spielberg?" She, sure. She, she said, can you say anything about it? I said, Oh, yeah, I did already. She said, well, no one ever showed it to me. Yeah. She said, just fax it over. I'll just run down the hall at the fax machine. And get. I said, this is easy. And so, and then, oh, I mean, I forget who else jumped in there. Maybe Ben, ben Kingsley and Liam Neeson. I mean, Goldie Horn. I mean, th- these unapproachable, you know, big stars. Yeah. And a little light bulb went off. And I said, well, if you honor one person... Mm. People have a reason. It's just not like, you know, a bunch of tuxedos. And so in 95, uh, again, uh, someone had tried it and they called us in to rescue it. There were, uh, Colin Powell put together this big event with all the living presidents or spouses, mm-hmm. in the case of Reagan, um, for volunteerism, you know, help at risk youth. It was like three weeks out, and we just, it it wasn't going to happen. And we just made it happen. We just threw people and ideas and everything at it, and it it got done. So we had a friend in the Clinton White House at that point. Ann Stock was the uh, social secretary. Uh. And so just one day I was saying, you know, I forget what I was doing. I was just sitting there. I said, well, with the Museum of the Moving Image, which I'd done another one for Robin Williams the next year. Uh, You know, you do this thing with one person and people come. Mm -hmm. And there really is no national award for comedy.
0: Mm.
2: So we had uh, worked with, uh, produced the Montreal Comedy Festival for a number of years for TV. And uh, we had honored uh, George Burns, one year. That was before he died. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, I went to to see Anne. Um, first time ever at the White House, and I said, "Well, here's what we'd like to do." And you know, we'd like to call it the Mark Twain Prize and honor George Burns. And she she said, "Well, I think that's a great idea." And then Whitewater and you know, uh, General Flowers and everything yeah, exploded. Yeah. Uh, and and Monica, um, a woman who I admire, I got to tell you. Mm. I mean, I follow her on Twitter. She's really smart yeah, and got yeah. great spirit. Um, so uh, Anne left the White House and she was at the Kennedy Center. George had died. George Burns. And then uh, one of our partners, Mark Krantz, <coughs> called and said, you know, People, uh, I think it was at Motown, I called him and said, you know, Richard Pryor is, you know, not doing well. It would be great if you could honor him. Hmm. So we went to the Kennedy Center and pitched the show. You know, Ann was there. The head was Larry Wilker. It took us 20 seconds to sell it.
1: Wow. I mean,
2: done. Um. And so that's how it started.
1: It was funny. I was I was looking back through that, and I was I was looking at the timelines, and I was like, was was Richard when you guys started that? Was because I knew that was that was the first one, right? Mm-hmm. I, I was like, I, I I I didn't know if he was still alive
2: at that point. Well, oh, he was. He was wheelchair bound. Okay. Uh, he could communicate to to the extent that he could smile and gesture, and he yeah. he really enjoyed it. We almost didn't get in Involved to a seven-year, there were so many f-bombs flung on the stage of the Kennedy Center, which had never happened. Uh, but we survived.
1: Why, why did you call it Mark Twain? Just because
2: it, it, it sounded like something that had been around for a hundred years. It sounded like <laughs> true. Washington had one, and he was a great humorist. Oh yeah, oh, extremely which I don't funny. Think, I, don't, I don't
1: think people think think about him that way, but oh, they do. Yeah, they do. I I I I remember reading when when uh, iPads first came on the market, or maybe mm-hmm. sh- shortly after. Finally, and maybe it took me a couple of years to finally get one. And and the one of the free books they had on there was was uh, I, I think it was Huck Finn, and and amazing, <clears throat> amazing book. And my son was like seven at the time, and I was like, is 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 it too much to to, to read this to a, a seven year old? And I just I just started kind of like, you know, telling him about the story a little bit, and he's like, "Well, you you can you can read it to me, you know." I was like, so I started reading it. You know, there's some tricky points in there because they use the n word and two hundred and fifty-two times, two hundred and fifty-two times. I think, yes, yeah, if I remember. And so, you know, but it was it was interesting because it was a it was definitely something I had to talk to him about, like in that moment. I mean, we're in Brooklyn too, you know, so but there there was there were some scenes in there that I don't think I picked up on the funniness of when I had to read them for high school or whatever it was <laughs> there was the one in particular where you know after he's found the the, the loot and mm-hmm. you know he's his his you know bum of a father alcoholic has taken him stolen him brought brought him up up river somewhere in some cabin his father beats him you know Daily, pretty often, but... For exercise. But but at least he doesn't have to take baths and go to school. Right. Right, Right. And I remember laughing out loud and and realizing, my son probably doesn't
2: realize. He's an extremely funny, funny man. A few years ago, there's, every four years, there's a gathering of Mark Twain scholars in Elmira, New York, which is where his summer house was. Actually, his wife's family, but that's where they went every summer, and so they invited me to give the keynote speech. They wanted me to talk about. um, I had edited a book of Twain's uh, travel writings, Mm. Um, so that sort of like legitimized me. But they wanted me to talk, tell you know, showbiz stories about the Mark Twain Prize, and we did. Um, But the really cool thing was. They gave my wife Melinda and I Twain's house for four days. Wow. Which, you know, it was on the bunch of rolling hills that go down to the Susquehanna River. It's just so green, you know, you could cry. Uh, it was this cool house. Did you fish? No, no, <laughs> no. I did go and visit a farmer who raised and still raises really great grass-fed beef.
1: mm your 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 other passion has, has writing seems to recently and, and speaking of, of beef has been has been pigs, Is yeah specifically the, the how do you, how do you pronounce it Iberico,
2: Iberico Iberico, that's the the Spanish the hog ha- you find that in that Spain from? yeah and Siberian but really it was the only pig that was in Europe before the 18th century hmm. all the other breeds came in in trade with the Far East, they were sort of these pigs that had been bra- bred, you know, through the millennia for, uh, to, you know, not be aggressive, to live near your farm, put on fat quick. But America Hog's the original hog in the world. And the way that happened was I'd written a book called The Moon Pulled Up an Acre of Bass, which was about every day for a month in October... I fished for striped bass during the migration at Montauk Point. Yeah, here, right, yeah. And got also to write about the migration of ducks and geese and whales and monarch butterflies and a lot of the crazy bootlegger history and American history. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. you know, immersion in a place. And so my editor said, uh, you know, afterwards, you well, know, now we'd like you to do a quotes writing book. <laughs> About food. And I didn't have an idea. And one day I'm in a shower, which is where Virginia Woolf said you get your ideas. So I guess I don't shower enough. I don't have that many. <laughs> but uh, I'm saying, you know, every time I've been on the road, like for, you know, the outdoor magazines in the South, um, I'd always see if someone made a good country ham. Because traditionally they do down there. You buy them at a gas station, wherever it is. Mm. And I love it. I love the stuff. Um, so I said, why, do, why don't I try to find the greatest country ham in the world or the greatest ham in the world? And I wrote a letter saying, like, here, here are some of my experiences that I've had when I, you know, writing outdoor stories of being in the South. And uh, so I said, I want to just go find the greatest one, and I, I, I you know, called the book Pig Perfect, which is a pretty good name. It kind of, yeah. I know, sold itself. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but once you, as I learned, once you start looking for the perfect ham, you got to find the perfect pig that's raised right, that's fed the right stuff, that's free range enough, that's gets old enough so it develops some fat in the, you mm-hmm. know, in the muscles. Um, and that led me to Spain where they just uh, – they have like the run of like 300 miles uh, and they eat acorns. Oh, yeah, Which that's are really right. high in uh, so-called healthy fats, monounsaturated fat. Yeah. They call the, they, and that's why they call the pig over there the four-footed olive tree. Oh, that's uh, interesting. But it really uh, – and, and, and you know, and they were eating acorns in that part of the world before wheat. So they've been breeding them a lot, and I've eaten Spanish acorns. They're sweet. It's not like uh, you know a biting one and one here. Yeah. Uh, so it's a beautiful fat, and it's a sweet meat. And uh, so that's how I wrote that book. Oh, that's that's and and and
1: the the the, the stuff I that I've, you know read uh, that you've kind of gotten into with the the discussion of pigs. Also, is, again, it's sort of similar to the things that you like to dig into, which is like looking at the culture and the history and the religion aspects around the, you know, even with, even with pigs, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I and mean, the stuff that I, I, I had no idea about. Good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> On the way to purpose. Well, I mean, I, th- I, th-
1: I think it's one of those things that for, for most people, I, th- I think, especially with food. And that's, that's what I think you've done so well is, is that, it, and and with and with a lot of the writing, even even when it just you know about whatever your 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 joy and your passion for for fly fishing is that, the the, the real sort of you know joie de vivre is the, the details is is really getting into like you know the the layers upon layers of things and once you get into it and I think we we should know more about our food and I think part of the reason that we sort of suffer some of the health issues that we have is because we're not paying enough attention to some of these things. Sure, sure. I feel like you, you kind of, you know, ten was it ten years ago or something that you had some health stuff going on, and you I had made, cancer, yeah, and and you made some huge like wholesale. Oh well,
2: that was uh, that came after. Right. I, first, I went for life insurance, and I, I weighed like forty pounds more than I do now. Yeah. Um, was
1: was that part of the uh, the byproduct of your your work?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. An occupational hazard, and uh, I, I was rejected. Uh, for life insurance. Right. Because I was pre diabetic. So I had to lose weight. Yeah. And I changed the way I ate and uh, um, wrote a book about that, Culinary Intelligence. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, when I look at it now, you know, nutritional advice, you know, changes from week to week. Yeah, right, you know, right. what, what, uh, the great nutrition writer Marion Nessel said, you know, for every PhD, there's an equal but opposite PhD. <laughs> but I, it, it by and large, I think it, it holds up. Yeah. You know, what I learned about nutrition and weight. Then some years later, when I had cancer, uh, you know, I was fit. Well, listen, it, it, you're not going to, you know, run your way out of cancer. I mean, you get it or right. you don't, and you're, yeah. it's the luck yeah. of the draw. But then if you can... If you have a kind that you have a chance of beating uh and you know you're you can withstand treatment and you're in good strong shape yeah. um you get through it yeah. uh so i think it had something to do with that
1: what, what did you what did you do you feel like you learned nutrition wise or what's what's stuck from from that understanding that you got
2: well i mean a few, a few things you, you whole you, you know, you buy vitamin-enriched, uh, you know, milk. Uh, it's hard to, to find it that it doesn't have uh, vitamin enrichment in yeah. it or, or bread. Or or you take vitamin pills. One thing I've learned is you can't separate nutrients out exactly from the food that they're a part of. Uh, and that your body, for example, fruit juice yeah. is probably no more healthy for you than... Coca-Cola. Right. Or maybe marginally so, but what really the real problem with fruit juice is it's sugar. It's, now, it's fructose. When you eat fruit that hasn't been juiced, you're eating all that cellulose and stuff. So and your body flavonoids and all these pieces. But also just the absorption of sugar is
1: not it's not like mainlining right. it right? There's a, there's a, there's a barrier fiber creates this barrier so you're kind of getting it in, in, in e- bits. Yeah. And spurts. Uh
2: Likewise, you know, whole grains um, are uh, you know converted to uh, sugar much less rapidly than refined and processed stuff. Processed stuff. So eating whole ingredients is is, is important. Um,
1: yeah it's very it's very similar to what I what changed for me. I mean I my my shift kind of came out of having a period of chronic back pain which you know I I kind of I kind of went after the, what what I always feel like are the, are the sort of main elements of of just you know having having some balance in life which are sleep eating better these things I kind of go back to every time I feel like if i if i get a couple of colds in a row i start looking at my you know just sort of the, the basics and then exercising like and and not not in the extreme version but but the but what you're talking about is exactly what i you know i mean i studied some nutrition for a while too i considered doing that as a as a job and realized i probably needed a phd in psych if i was going to hmm. help people with <laughs> with their eating habits but it but it, you know it's it is so much more simple it's it's just a matter
2: of organizing well, like the main, like little mantra that I took from it all was what I call flavor per calorie. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. If you can up the amount of flavor, you know, sensual satisfaction you get from each mouthful, you need less. And I've seen it, you know, you, you, if I could put a nice aged uh, or grass-fed or both, you know, ribeye in front of you or strip steak, New York cut, three slices if you eat three slices and I took it away you're not going to be pissed off yeah whereas I can put a whole you know just you know feed lot hunk of meat in front of you and you can eat a pound and a half of it and you're still there's no off switch because you haven't satisfied you know yourself at all which was the problem with the, the the no fat
1: you know craze that went on you know in the 80s and 90s is that you take you take the, the fat is actually the part that satiates you, and so but it's the same thing you know the flavor per calorie. And part. Fat
2: is so important to development of yeah. nerves, yeah. And your brain is a lot of nerves. Yeah. If people didn't eat fat, we'd still be you know we'd still be sharing trees with with, with chimps. <laughs> On that note, thanks
1: for thanks for doing this with me. Oh, a pleasure. It's really really great, Jerry. Peter Kaminsky folks Always so much fun to talk to him The thing I love about his stories and his writing Is that they they bring you into a place And into a a, a deeper experience of the subject matter That he's digging into His writing gives us the opportunity to consider our relationships To nature, to food, and to each other If you're a foodie or love the outdoors In particular fly fishing I highly recommend checking out his books I know they're on Amazon, uh, available for download as well and at your favorite bookstore he's also one of my favorite people to follow on social media so check him out there as well just to check a quick reminder that uh, if you haven't rated the podcast yet i'd really appreciate it if you take a few seconds to just go over and leave us a comment uh, if you like what you're hearing uh, here's how you do it if you're using the itunes app tap on the highway to health icon that brings up the episode list scroll to the bottom and you'll see the ratings and reviews thanks so much for listening and for supporting this project. If you'd like to support the project, don't forget, it just takes a minute. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. And also, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you thought of this topic and conversation. I'm always easy to to reach by email. It's jeremy at highway to health podcast.com. Be good to yourself. Be kind to each other and take care of your planet. Be
0: well, my friends. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.